The following is a message by Joel Bean, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. This morning, we are heading into a new series that's going to take us through the summer. We'll be preaching selected parables of Jesus. We're going to be curating our own nine-part collection of short stories and scenes. So such a collection would benefit from an introduction to framing. One advantage of preaching parables during the summer is that the series, this series, can be connected without being consecutive. So if you miss a week or two because you're traveling or you're involved in summer camp or something like that, you won't have to have heard the last sermon to benefit fully from the next one. But why parables? What are we seeking to accomplish in preaching them? We are really excited about this series, so I want to take a little time here at the outset to explain why and to stir your expectations for this walk through a number of Jesus' parables. Once upon a time, a king came to earth to tell stories, and the stories contained the mystery of eternal life. That quote from Jared C. Wilson in his book, The Storytelling God, invites us into the wonder of parables. King Jesus, the Word of God, the author of language itself, the spring of all creativity, the master storyteller, weaved words, crafting memorable metaphors, similes and scenes as he taught the crowds. Matthew, Mark, and Luke call the synoptic gospels because they tell the story of Jesus in very similar ways record a number of Jesus' sayings, scenarios, and stories. Some of these parables are found in all three of the synoptics, like the mustard seed, or the binding of the strong man, or the, the, the budding fig tree. A number of the best-known parables, like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, are only told in Luke's Gospel. It's clear, based on the airtime that, that they're given in the Gospels, uh, that the parables are very important. I mean, they're not meant to function like props would in a TV show or a stage play. They're not there for realism, so you can be like, oh yeah, I can get a feel for what life would have been like in the rural or, or urban settings in the Near Eastern world. They are imaginative vehicles through which Jesus chose to communicate spiritual truths. They are common scenes containing uncommon wisdom. As Wilson explains, the parables proclaim in their unique way the gospel of the kingdom of God and King Jesus as the king of that kingdom. The glory of Christ is to be had in the parables, provided the parables are had at all. Now that's one of the reasons we want to preach the parables this summer, because the glory of Christ is to be had in them. Though we often feel like we do, we never have a more urgent need than seeing the glory of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 teaches us that we are transformed steadily and incrementally into the image of Jesus as we behold his glory in the scriptures. Now we often pray for God to transform situations in our lives, forgetting that his priority is changing us so that we respond differently in those same situations. He wants us to grow to find him more satisfying and therefore display him as a sufficient savior to others. In the parables, we encounter glory that will transform us. We also encounter the wisdom of Christ in the parables. His is an otherworldly wisdom. 
shaped by the nature of the supernatural kingdom of God and its promises. That means it's often counterintuitive. The ways of our king and his kingdom are not like the ways of this world. And the wisdom on often the parables is wide-ranging. It trains us to be confident in God's unseen work, patient in prayer, forgiving towards each other, weary of self-righteousness, secure in God's love, generous with our resources, and alert for Jesus' return. Now, I don't know about you, but I need all of that. I want you to walk into this series expecting to encounter the glory and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. But we need to tread carefully. For many of us, the parables are very familiar territory. You know, some of us will look back to our Sunday school days and remember the flannel graphs. And you, know, you put up the, the picture of, 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 of the prodigal son. You know, and he's on his way home. And there's a father with his open arms. And there's a house behind him. And we're telling the stories. And often in the telling of those stories, the focus was what we needed to be like or what we needed to do. You know, we're doing a lot of moral lessons from it. And there are moral lessons in the parables. But that's not the point. When we get into this kind of familiar territory, uh, where the stories and the pictures have imprinted themselves on our memories, we need to tread carefully. Uh, I think a lot of you would be well acquainted with many of the parables, you know, with the wise and the foolish bridesmaids, with the treasure hidden in a field, the rich man and Lazarus. And you know, you probably could, if I asked you afterwards, you could trace the plot lines of some of those stories without even rereading the text. Here's a warning and an encouragement from Jared Wilson. It's possible for familiarity to breed apathy or numbness if we come to Jesus' stories in a lackadaisical, unexpected, in lackadaisical, unexpected, and unsubmissive ways. Instead, let us come again and again to the old, old story of Jesus and his love and behold his power freshly, ever new. So, then, let's pray and ask God to do that in us. And then we're going to dive into chapter 1 of our collection. Lord, uh, in what is familiar territory for many of us, we ask for a particular work of your spirit that helps us to see some of the same stories, the same images with new eyes, so that we would behold your power and your glory and your wisdom again and be transformed by that. We pray in Jesus' name. Please make your way with me to Mark chapter 4. So this is chapter 1 of our little collection of parables. The sower and the soils. The gospel of Mark that we're jumping into is a fast-paced and action-heavy account of the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus bursts onto the scene in chapter 1, announcing the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Immediately, he starts calling disciples to follow him. He's preaching. He's casting out demons with authority. He's healing the sick. He's drawing these massive crowds from all around the countryside. And it's looking at this point like he's going to ascend to the throne of Israel on the shoulders of popular acclaim. But just as quickly, we see rising resistance to Jesus and his message in chapters 2 and 3. Scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite, the gatekeepers, the most knowledgeable and righteous of the people, start to clash with and question Jesus. They accuse him of casting out demons with demonic power. 
If that wasn't bad enough, even Jesus' family, his own mother and brothers, think that he has lost his mind. What looked like a procession for a little while there now seems like an uncertain slog through hostile territory. Is Jesus the long-awaited king or is he an imposter? I mean, what's going on? It should catch our attention if we're reading through the Gospel of Mark that Mark slows his narrative down in chapter 4 to present some of Jesus' teaching at length. And if that doesn't, then how Jesus speaks when he begins to teach should. He says, listen. Behold. Let's, so let's listen then with focused attention as we read Mark 4 from verses 1 to 20. Mark 4, reading from 1 to 20. Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no grain. And other seed fell in good soil and produced grain. Growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word was word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit, thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This parable is commonly called the parable of the sower, but uh, it's perhaps a little better title, the parable of the sower and the soils. And it's a very appropriate choice for chapter one of our collection. I actually preached this text. Uh, Almost three years ago, when we were preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Um, the appropriateness of this text uh, is, is the case for a couple of reasons. For one, it's one of the few parables where we have Jesus give the parable 
and then explain the point. That's very helpful for us. That's going to make it much harder, though not impossible, for us as preachers and readers to miss the point. In that sense, but really only in that sense, it's an easier place to begin. There's another reason, though, for tackling it. And that reason is embedded in this text. Just before Jesus explains the point, Jesus asks his disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This parable is significant among the parables. Commentators identify it as, as the parable about parables. As Mark Strauss explains, those who comprehend the message about good soil producing good fruit will be receptive to the word sown in, in the other parables. There's something to receive here that will help us with all of the rest of the parables. So we're going to proceed in the way that the text is laid out. First we'll look at the parable in verses 1 to 9. And then the paradox that Jesus explains about parables in verses 10 to 12. And finally the point as Jesus explains the parable in verses 13 to 20. So the parable, then the paradox, then the point. I'm being very Baptistic this morning. Alliteration and three-point sermon. Come on. Come on, Baptist. Look, former Baptist. <laughs> Alright, so let's look at a parable. Do I need to switch this because it's chipping off? Is it okay? Alright. Alright, let's look at the parable. In the first two verses of our text, Mark is going to set the scene. Jesus is teaching by the Sea of Galilee again, and a very large crowd has gathered to hear him. So the crowd management plan then was for Jesus to teach seated in a boat by the shore of the sea. Based on what Mark has told us about Jesus' priorities from the very beginning of his ministry, we know that he was teaching the good news of the kingdom. But the detail that Mark points our attention to now in chapter 4 is that Jesus was teaching in parables. And he wants us to understand that this, this mode of teaching was the norm when Jesus spoke to the crowds. Look down at verses 33 and 34 in chapter 4. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So track with me for a bit in this chapter. Just kind of scan your eyes between verse 21 and about 32. Between these verses, Mark relates a number of Jesus' parables. There are no full-blown stories among these. Most of those are found in the Gospel of Luke. Some of the parables that Mark, Mark presents are scenarios, like the one we're considering. The lamp under a basket in verses 21 and 22 is a saying that employs a metaphor. The parable of the mustard seed in verses 30 to 32 is a simile, where Jesus sets up a comparison. The kingdom of God is light. Now, these parables do not function merely as illustrations of the way Jesus taught, as if Mark is doing a kind of biography and he's like, hey, yeah, Jesus was a teacher, I'm just going to give you some selected things he said. Mark's purpose is to help us to understand what is going on in Jesus' ministry and the nature of the kingdom that he's announcing. Now, I've said that a lot about parables so far without attempting to define them. Perhaps the most commonly taught understanding of a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That definition serves because it's memorable, but it's not adequate. Vincent Taylor offers this definition. A metaphor or story connected with the affairs of daily life 
is used as an illustration of, of moral and spiritual truths on the assumption that what applies in one sphere is relevant also in others. That's much more helpful but much less memorable. The key insight is the way parables teach through correspondence. What applies in one sphere is relevant also in others. The familiar everyday story illuminates something about the nature of the kingdom of God. The scenario that Jesus paints would have, would have been familiar to his audience, even though it's much less familiar to us today. What we're looking for as we enter it is what is meant to tell us about the kingdom of God. Before we examine the parable itself, we, it would be profitable for us to take note of what brackets the parable. So look at verse 3. Jesus starts out, listen, behold. Then look down at verse 9. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the first chapter of the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman calling out loudly in the marketplace, offering life-saving counsel to any and all who would pay attention. In those days, everyone needed to, to, to go to the marketplace at some point or other. So it was this melting pot, this gathering point for the whole city or town. Here in Mark, everyone was gravitating to wisdom himself. So he sat in a boat and called out to them, imploring them to listen to his teaching. Now, if you're not following Jesus, I, I want you to know that my job as a preacher is to present his teaching for you to listen to it. In this Gospel of Mark, Jesus is distinguished by his actions and by God's actions as someone unique. Slowly but surely, the narrative is unveiling Jesus' identity. And the point, as resoundingly expressed by God's voice from heaven in chapter 9, when Jesus' intrinsic glory is revealed for a moment, is this. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Lots of people have opinions about Jesus. But what God wants you to do is to listen to him. And my prayer is that as you listen, God will give you ears to hear Look now at the parable itself. Now, is it just me, or is this parable strikingly plain? It must be acknowledged that it's a scenario, not a story, and not to expect some kind of conflict or rising tension in this scenario. But even with that granted, isn't it particularly unimpressive? A farmer scatters seed in what hits us as a strangely indiscriminate manner. We have reason to wonder whether the sower wouldn't have made better use of his seed by aiming it more carefully rather than just kind of like, do that. You know? Different commentators that I've read go in different directions regarding the specific planting techniques at the time, whether perhaps the ground would have been plowed again after the seed was scattered. But however they approached it, it seems to be the case that for Jesus' audiences, they'd be hearing this story and saying, yeah, I saw I went to sow seed and he scattered the seed. All right, yeah, that's, that's, that's what they do. And as, as Jesus continues his story, the focus of the parable shifts from the sower to the fate of the seed. And that depended on where the seed landed. So some seed that was scattered falls on the footpath. Now, even though we have paved roads and concrete sidewalks these days, we still understand that the earth on, on a footpath is tightly packed uh, from the traffic of those who walk there. So that seed became birthed. Other seed landed on rocky ground, and in shallow soil, it started to grow quickly. 
but those shallow roots would not have been any match for the kind of heat that we are getting this summer, which would be very similar to the Palestinian sun. So those plants withered quickly and died. Still, other seed landed in thorny ground. And though that's, that seed grew, yeah, that's, that's not good. Let's try that again. Though that seed grew, okay. <laughs> so the, the seed that lands on the thorny ground, though it grew into plants, those plants were choked and starved by the thorns, so they didn't produce anything. Lastly, some seed fell on good soil. And that seed produces grain with the yield varying 30, 60, and up to 100 times what was planted. And that's the parable. Jesus puts a full stop on it by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is basically another parable. Do you see what I mean about the parable being unremarkable? It's vivid, granted. I mean, we can picture the sower and the seed landing in different soils and having a different fate in each. Yet the whole thing seems so mechanistic and impersonal. What could it be revealing about the nature of the kingdom of God? David Garland, in writing on the book of Mark, provocatively argues, the parable itself has no meaning at all. A farmer goes out to sow and meets with failure and a good yield. So what? I mean, that's scandalous. Like, come on, Garland. I mean, this is, this is Jesus' teachings. How can you say that? But to be fair, Garland captures perfectly what I wrestle with when I read this parable on its own. I've come to see what he was driving at. What makes this parable consequential is not the story itself, but your connection to the teller of the parable. What makes it matter is who you're rooting for, to put it that way. The obvious point of sowing is reaping a harvest. If it doesn't matter to you whether the sower's work results in fruitfulness, if you don't care what happens to the seed, then really there's nothing to see here. Suppose Jesus had not interpreted this parable for us. Would we have been left completely in the dark? If so, how are we supposed to understand many of his other parables which he does not interpret? We're told that he explained them in, in private to the disciples. But we're not privy to those conversations. Mark Maynell writes to help us in his book, What Angels Long to Read. In fact, you're actually going to hear Mark preach a parable in two Sundays from now, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. So Mark says this, We are in danger of misunderstanding the parables, not because we lack the key, but because we ignore the context. Sometimes it's obvious, but even when there is no obvious audience, we must see how the parables fit in, fit in with the overall thrust of that particular gospel. You see, even without Jesus' clarification, the context Mark presents this parable in gets us on the right road. As we saw, there have been these vastly differing responses to Jesus and his message. His family has rejected him, and he has embraced those among the crowds who do God's will as his new family. He's been questioned and rejected by those who should have known God's word best. The scribes and the Pharisees, yet embraced by fishermen and, ta and tax collectors who left everything to follow him. This parable and the rest of this chapter then are meant to help us to understand how Jesus sees his own ministry. He knows that the same message is hitting people in different ways. Why is Jesus teaching in this way? Why stories and metaphors? I mean, he's gathered a crowd, so why not just make a grand announcement? If he has marked his
his clarification about why he teaches in parables. Even as he brings clarification, he presents a paradox. So let's look at the paradox. We're now in verse 10. Jesus is in a circle now asks him about the parables. That's our clue that Mark has put this right here, put this conversation right in the middle to struggle. A sower is scattering seed in an entirely unselective manner. And it's a so if we push that to where it seems to be going, Jesus is, as it were, throwing out the word of God to the crowds, and what's going to determine what the word does within them is how they hear and respond to it. Correct? That summary sounds good? Okay. But now, Jesus is making a distinction between you and those outside. Between you and them. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. To you has been given. There's more going on here than the parable reveals. Jesus is not just throwing out seed non-selectively. He's handing out secrets to some and not to others. This verse warrants some unpacking. Here's what Jesus is saying. When it comes to my ministry, there are two types of people. Insiders and outsiders. You, meaning the disciples who surround him asking questions, are insiders. Insiders have been given the secret or mystery of the kingdom of God. They didn't discover it through superior mental powers. It's a gift of God's grace. Whenever the New Testament speaks of a secret or mystery, it's referring to something that God concealed in the past but has now revealed. But in this gospel, the arrival of the kingdom of God is not a revelation, is not about revelation as information. It's about revelation as embodiment. God's kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus. As Strauss puts it, the secret to which the disciples are privy is that the power and presence of the kingdom of God are breaking into human history through the words and deeds of Jesus, the Messiah. So what is the secret of the kingdom of God? It's Jesus. He is the mystery of God that has been concealed in ages past and is now being revealed. As Garland says, the bearer of the kingdom has come incognito. What these disciples have been given is a relationship with the king himself. Jesus is saying, I've given you a secret that is wrapped up in me so that you might understand my teaching. As Edwards points out, only in fellowship with Jesus do parables disclose the meaning of the kingdom of God. See, here's what I want you to recognize here. And this is going to help us as we move forward in this series. The words of God do not make sense when separated from the word of God. He is the key to understanding the parables because ultimately the parables are about the king and his kingdom. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, these disciples still have no idea who Jesus really is and what they really have. They're insiders and there are outsiders. This is pictured vividly at the end of chapter 3. If you just glance back over there, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus' own family are literally outside of the house where he's teaching. The crowds, the teachers of the law and the religious insiders who accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed have also become outsiders. For outsiders, the meaning of Jesus' teaching is concealed in parables. And both the giving to insiders and the withholding from outsiders is by design. 
Through the parables, Jesus and the Father are working in concert to reveal the kingdom to insiders and conceal it from others. This is the paradox of parables. They reveal, yet they conceal. In the parable of the sower and the soils, the nature of the kingdom of God is hidden and made known. The nature of true discipleship is buried and bursting forth. Jared Wilson explains, the parables are designed to stir those whose antenna are tuned to their frequencies and to confound those whose antenna are not. Menel compares them to automatic sliding doors. You know, like when you go to the supermarket, those doors open to, to those who are moving towards them. But they remain closed to anyone who's going to stand at a distance and just look. Another commentator I read compares them to stained glass windows that from the outside look dull and uninteresting, but from the inside reveal vivid scenes bursting with brilliant colors. Parables are like filters allowing some things through but resisting other things. They're like magnets able to attract and to repel. Why though is God concealing the truths of the kingdom from outsiders? Well, Jesus tells us why. This passage is one of the most difficult in the New Testament. Look at verse 12, and I'll, I'll read from verse 11 for continuity. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In the simplest, most straightforward reading of this text, Jesus is saying that he teaches in parables in order to blind the eyes of some people to ensure that they do not repent in response to his teaching. But that's disturbing and perplexing. Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, likening what God is doing now in his own ministry to what God did then in Isaiah's ministry. That was a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 5, God portrayed his people as a vineyard that he owns and has invested in, but it fails to produce fruit, an image of Israel's obstinate unfaithfulness to God. The commission Isaiah is given in chapter 6 is to announce a message that would have a hardening effect on those who had heard it. It would cement them in their unrepentance as an act of God's judgment. Again, we're faced with a paradox. In the ministry of Jesus, in the, the very parables of Jesus, God is bringing salvation and judgment. Edwards offers this summary. The sense of 4, 11 to 12 is that Jesus' parables confirm the states of people's hearts. Insiders who are with Jesus will be given the understanding of the mystery. And outsiders who are not with Jesus will be confirmed in their unbelief. So Jesus' parables are a doorway for those who are with Jesus and listen to him, but a barrier to others. They admit insiders, but bar outsiders. By sovereign design and agency, the parables attract some people, but repel others. And they are not understood through intellectual ability, but through relationship with Jesus. Here's why it's important for us to know this, or at least one of the reasons. If you are a believer, recognize that you understand Jesus' teaching, actually though imperfectly, because he has brought you into a relationship with him by his spirit. 1 Corinthians, 12, 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 and 14, explain the gift we've received and the capacity we formerly lacked. Now we have received, no, no, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So aren't you grateful then for the gift of God's Spirit? As a whole, this text profoundly reveals three levels of activity. There's the sowing level. Jesus' unselective preaching to the crowds. Then there's the soil level. People's hearing of the word that leads to different outcomes. And there's the sovereignty level. God's hidden work of salvation and judgment. When Jesus speaks, how people hear and, and respond matters. But that's not all, but, but, but it's not all about that. It's not all about us. God is not hands-off in the work of the gospel. He too is making choices. David Garland summarizes this well. The division between outsiders and insiders then is based both on God's choice and the individual's choice. A paradox that Mark does not attempt to resolve. But why, you would wonder, why is God blinding the eyes of some? As the story of Jesus unfolds in this gospel, one of the most amazing things to recognize is how this hardening plays a pivotal role in God's redemptive purposes. The religious leaders reject Jesus. In, in time, the enthusiastic crowds, the same crowds that are loving his teaching now, will reject him also. And it's precisely because they saw but did not perceive, uh, and they heard but did not understand, that Jesus' enemies betrayed and killed him. Their rejection was central to redemption. Even in rebellion, they were advancing God's gracious plans. But was God's rejection of them final? What we know from the rest of the New Testament is that Mary, Jesus' mother, eventually sees who he really is and trusts in him. We also know that to be the case for James, Jesus' brother, and it seems to have been the case for other, other brothers of Jesus too. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, we meet Joseph of Arimathea, one of the religious leaders who puts his trust in Jesus. You see, one of the, 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 the things that encourages us in Mark is that there are outsiders who become insiders by God's gracious activity. Now Jesus will explain the meaning of the parable he taught. But first, quite uncomfortably, he rebukes those with him for their lack of understanding. So let's look at the point then. We're going to be moving from verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? I mean, we, we just talked about the fact that these disciples are the insiders who have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And, and they didn't understand the parable? Mark's consistent portrayal of the shortcomings of Jesus' disciples gives hope to all of us struggling disciples. Our ignorance does not disqualify us. Discipleship is not about keeping our eyes on our own performance, kind of checking our grades and measuring ourselves, but keeping our eyes on Jesus and continually coming to Him with our struggles. Jesus' second question indicates that in some sense, this parable functions as a key that unlocks all parables. It reveals foundational truths about the nature of God's kingdom. It speaks to who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and why it seems to be failing in so many cases and what discipleship looks like. And more importantly, it transforms those who truly hear it. By framing discipleship as listening, as hearing and, as hearing and receiving Jesus' teaching uh, that leads to fruitfulness. So that's what's going to help us to see discipleship. Discipleship is listening, it's 
hearing and receiving Jesus' teaching and it's going to lead to fruitfulness. So this parable then is going to prepare us in that way for the rest of the parables. When we understand it, it's going to shape how we will listen to the word of God in all the parables. So what's going to happen to us then as this gets into us is that we're not going to listen casually to the parables. We're going to lean into them. We're going to lean into Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus does not leave his disciples in their ignorance. He explains the parable. Despite their shortcomings, once again, he shows them that he is what they need and that he is all they need. So here's what Jesus explains. The sower sows the word. The sower is Jesus, of course. And the seed is his preaching. The seed which fell on the path corresponds to those who hear but are unresponsive to the message because of Satan's agency. No, this reminds us that Satan is not just interested in possessing people. He's hell-bent on preventing them from believing the gospel. The seeds which, which fell on rocky ground represents those who respond joyfully to the gospel but fail to endure the troubles and trials that come on account of the gospel. The seed which fell among thorns represents those who respond and appear to be growing but the gospel is crowded out of the place of priority that it must be given by the worries of this life and by other priorities like chasing wealth or other desires which Jesus does not detail here. But the end result is that these people bear no fruit. What's disturbing here is that there's an observable effect in two of the three types of heroes who eventually prove unfruitful. The word has an effect but it's not lasting. But look at verse 20. The seed sown on good soil represents those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Interestingly enough, in varying yields. So here, here are two quotes that are going to help us to just, just see what we're getting here. See the value of Jesus' explanation. This is Eckhart Snarl. He says, the parable of the four soils explains why Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the coming of the kingdom is not universally and joyfully accepted, but paradoxically met with puzzlement, lack of understanding, disregard, antagonism, and fierce resistance. James Edwards is going to highlight another aspect, and this should encourage us greatly. The parable represents the historical inbreaking of God's kingdom in Jesus, the sower of the gospel. God is at work, hidden and unobserved, in Jesus and the gospel to produce a yield wholly disproportionate to human prospects and merit. So the gospel will be preached. It will be rejected by many and appear to fail in the case of many others. But there will be an abundant harvest. So let's, let, let's, let's work this in for us now. So as was the case for the original disciples, this parable is meant to shape our expectations as we repeat the good news to others. Some people we talk to about Jesus, no matter how, 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 how good we felt on that day, we were answering all the questions right, we were listening to them carefully, some of them are going to reject it. Some are going to respond and it's going to look good for a while, but they're going to fall away and never bear fruit. But some will receive it and bear much fruit. Now, knowing that this is and has always been the nature of gospel ministry is going to protect us from discouragement. It's going to prepare us to be patient. And it's going to dissuade us from trying to manipulate people. But there's more here. One of the ways that we can understand this parable is by thinking it only describes how people come 
or don't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That the parable of the sower and the soils is about what happens when unbelievers hear the gospel. But the gospel by which we come to faith is the same gospel by which we mature and bear fruit. Every time we preach Christ, this parable is in action. I also think that by extension, though not necessarily in exactly the same way, every time we speak the good news of Jesus to each other, the kind of things we're trying to do in our grace groups, or, 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 or to people who are not yet believers, showing how Jesus' work invades our situations and is meant to shape our attitudes and actions, the dynamic of this parable is at play. What that means is that this parable is meant to warn and encourage us as we hear the gospel over and over and over and over again. As Jesus explains the parable, he repeats two terms multiple times, hear and word, over and over again in this explanation, hear and word. Jesus is calling our attention to how we listen to the gospel. Remember, the gospel connects to every area of our lives. There's no area that Jesus does not mean to redeem, no area where he means to leave, leave us in slavery to sin and Satan. In other words, the word of God is meant to continue to do the work of God in our hearts and lives until it's complete. And how we listen matters. We see this in James. In, in chapter 1, verse 18, James speaks of our conversion. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Then, James says to these believers just a couple of verses later, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What James is speaking to here is both our growth in holiness and our final salvation when Jesus returns. So, here's the rope. At no point can we be casual listeners to God's word, presuming that we are saved because we are already saved. You follow me? We never get to a point where we're like, yeah, 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 somebody's preaching about Jesus. But I'm saved. Sorry. Whatever they're saying, that just fly past me today and it's not going to matter. Salvation is not a transaction. It's a relationship in which we become disciples who listen attentively to Jesus, our teacher. Let's be attentive to this parable so that we're ready for more in this series. So over the coming eight over the coming weeks, we're going to look at eight more parables. How will they land on your heart as they teach about the king and his kingdom? When Jesus highlights the difference between his perspective and ours, will we humbly receive his word? When the parables show us what it looks like to love or, or forgive, when they call us out on attachment to possessions or how we think about this life and the next life, Will the word find good soil in our hearts and produce attitudes and actions that please God? Will we be drawn to Jesus in these parables as a savior to trust, a lord to obey, and a treasure to cling to? Or will the seed be stolen because of our hard-heartedness? Or find shallow soil because we fail to endure when life gets tough? Or will it be choked by other desires and fail to produce fruit? This parable is calling us away from indifferent listening, uncommitted listening, and distracted listening towards determined, serious, and persistent listening. Yet in all of this, it is not calling us to self-dependent listening. We're called to faithful listening, but fruitfulness does not depend ultimately on us. 
We depend ultimately on Jesus. In Him, in relationship with Him, the Father has given us the secret of the kingdom. He has given us ears to hear and calls us to listen and respond. And He's at work in us through His Word. These parables which Jesus speaks have within them the power to open ears to hear. A truth illustrated in Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of Mark. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Edward sums up the call to us well. Only one thing remains for disciples to do. To hear. Discipleship is not what we can make of ourselves, but allowing both the sower and the seed to produce a harvest of which we alone are in faith. So having spent some time sitting in this parable and wrestling with the nature of parables, what does this parable of the sower and the soil help us to see about itself and about all the parables? Here's our summary. In Jesus' parables, the secrets of the kingdom are concealed from the hard-hearted, but revealed to those who receive and listen to him. In Jesus' parables, the secrets of the kingdom are concealed from the hard-hearted, but revealed to those who receive and listen to him. We can only understand Jesus' parables in his presence. The secrets of the kingdom are revealed in him, in his life, death, resurrection, reign, and return. And we receive understanding as we behold his glory and wisdom through the Holy Spirit whom God has given us. Jesus is God's greatest story. God's living parable. The meaning of which is only revealed on the other side of the cross. And only to those who have been given eyes to see. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 1 of our collection of parables is an invitation to listen. Listen attentively. Listen persistently. Expect to be surprised by even what is familiar. Expect to be confronted. Embrace the transformation that comes through the power of God. Listen, relying on Him who promises that His Word will produce a harvest in those whom He has given ears to hear. Let's pray for His help. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.